Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at King Estate on June 13th, 2019. We're here with Ray Nuclo. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Ray. Appreciate My it. My pleasure. Um, let's start out with asking why grapes? What got you interested in viticulture? Well, um, probably the main thing that uh, interested me in it was uh, the commitment to sustainability in the industry. And uh, I was out. Um, doing my master's uh, degree at Oregon State and uh, had always been interested in organic and sustainable ag and so um, uh, it wasn't directly related to my education. I was doing uh, plant pathology um, but I was working in orchards primarily at the time doing my research so and there's a lot of similarities between vineyards and orchards mm -hmm. in terms of uh, production. And then I also saw the growth of the industry. This was in the mid to late 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I uh, just felt like it was a uh, exciting growing field to get into. So previous to grapes, you mentioned plant pathology, botany. What was the interest there? What got you uh, down that road? Well. Uh, going back to high school, I was uh, very interested in science and biology, and um, early on in college, I kind of decided to start focusing more on botany, mm -hmm. uh, and then towards the end of my uh, bachelor's degree, uh, I took some courses in plant pathology, and one of the things I liked about uh, plant pathology was that... Um, it has a real ecological aspect to it, and I always liked ecology as well. Mm -hmm. And so you're bringing in a mul uh, multitude of things, including uh, plants and uh, the environment, and then also the pathogens, so mm -hmm. uh, fungi, bacteria, viruses. So sure. just the interaction between them two, I always thought was real interesting. So. so you develop an interest in, in viticulture, and, and you kind of see Oregon as a place on the rise. So tell mm -hmm. me about where you started and, and what your kind of initial impressions were of Oregon as a wine industry. Yep. So I started off um, working at a small vineyard west of Corvallis. Uh, it was um, owned by Lloyd Crisp, father of Di Crisp. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had a mutual friend that introduced me to Di and I expressed my interest in um, the vineyard and kind of just ask questions and so he hooked me up with uh, a job that summer and so started off uh, just doing field labor and uh, each year I kind of progressed from different jobs but in the end I thought it was uh, a really good way to come into the industry because I saw pretty much from the ground up how everything gets done. Uh, progressed pretty quickly year by year um, into management positions and um, you know and again one of the things that uh, uh, 
really drew me to working with Dai was he was also very interested in organic viticulture and um, you know back then it wasn't really a lot of people were uh, growing organically but it wasn't something that you marketed as um, organic grapes uh, more so I think uh, there was back then it was almost um, <clears throat> a negative connotation uh, people associated organics and wine with um, kind of lack of consistency and not always good quality mm -hmm. and so that's kind of one of the exciting things to see that perception kind of change mm -hmm. as uh, most people were either growing organically because they felt like that was the right thing to do in terms of um, being a steward of the land or um, you know d uh, another aspect of it would be that they felt like it produced higher quality grapes but it wasn't something that you would bring out to the marketplace mm. and advertise uh, that you're so nobody back then would ask you for copies of your certificate <laughs> or anything like that mm -hmm. whereas now there seems to be a lot more interest in uh, actually using that as a marketing tool mm -hmm. so so what when you when you kind of entered the industry what were your initial impressions of it either kind of specifically or or in general what did you think about the work being done uh, you know I kind of felt like it was still um, pretty small scale and uh, and kind of like you said at lunch it was a real community feeling to it mm -hmm. um, and a lot of kind of uh, potential to define what it was going to be. Um, so there was a lot of excitement to it, I felt, mm -hmm. and um, an opportunity. It was a real growing, I mean, it's gone through a number of uh, growth phases, and when you probably compare it to some of the more modern ones, it probably wasn't the biggest growth phase back then in the mid to late 90s but there was a fair amount of planting mm -hmm. going on and um, uh, just felt like it was an exciting uh, industry to get into that had a lot of growth potential sure so sure so after working with the crisps uh, what's your kind of next step in your and kind of working your way up what's your next step I uh, went to Croft Vineyard mm -hmm. which um, when I started working uh, at the Crisps Vineyard in uh, Wren, uh, which is, that's the name of the vineyard, Wren Vineyard, um, Dai was managing Temperance Hill, I mean uh, Croft. Mm. And so that was kind of my connection to Croft and uh, moved over to there uh, a year after I worked um, in Wren and started off there again field labor some tractor driving uh, worked my way to uh, assistant vineyard manager um, then I, I left there for a few years and worked on kind of a renovation project uh, down the road from uh, Wren Vineyard a place called Cardwell Hill Vineyard and sort of brought that uh, vineyard had been abandoned and brought it into production for the new owner uh, 
and then shortly after that, I returned to Croft and took over uh, vineyard manager there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was there for a good 10 years um, at Croft managing their vineyard. And that's where I developed a relationship with King Estate. I mean, I had gone to King Estate with Dye one year delivering grapes in 1998, but when I really started working directly with them was in the early 2000s when we were selling uh, grapes to them. And, um, so continued that on until, uh, see, in 2011, I started doing some consulting here with their estate vineyard and then uh, um, they asked me to come on in 2013 mm -hmm. and to take over, to continue to sort of oversee the management of the estate vineyard but then also to oversee all the contracted vineyards mm -hmm. as well. So. It's a big task. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's, it stretches from you know, Walla Walla, Tri-Cities all the way down to uh, Medford, sure. uh, Ashland area. Sure. So a lot of traveling. <laughs> so so let me back up for a second before I talk more about that because yeah. I'm really curious about that. Uh, when you got kind of got started, what was there? Were there unforeseen challenges, things you weren't expecting about growing grapes specifically or wine, the wine industry in general? Um, I mean, it, I hadn't really grown up in. Uh, an agricultural or horticultural setting and so it was a little um, it took a little bit to get used to sort of the cycle of oversupply and undersupply and especially in Oregon because there's not only um, market uh, factors that influence that but um, our ability to set fruit is so contingent upon the weather, mm -hmm. especially back then, it was much more common to have sort of variable weather at this time of year during bloom. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, compared to a lot of growing regions where they can uh, set their crop just by the number of shoots that they put out, and it may vary like plus or minus 10% or so, depending on weather conditions. Whereas here, we can vary plus or minus 50, 60%. So the, the difference from one year to the next in terms of uh, how much fruit you have out there can be pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, and then just getting used to uh, some of the challenges growing organically in Oregon. Um, and uh, the again, not having grown up in agricultural settings, uh, dealing with the stress associated with growing organically, and um, if you do and get some disease out there, and I think being having a background in plant pathology, for better or worse, I was really good at finding, let's say, mildew, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky, but it, sometimes I would just get out of the car and walk into a block and, oh, look, there's a little mildew. And then I'd have to spend the rest of the day looking and not finding much to assure myself that there wasn't this big problem going on out there. So it took me a little while to get used to um, not getting too stressed about things. 
especially if you're, and I think a lot of that had to do with becoming more comfortable uh, knowing that I was doing the things that you need to do and, mm-hmm. um, and not, it never, I've never had like a, a really bad crop loss or anything. And so just after getting enough years of experience, it made life a lot easier growing <laughs> grapes. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm curious in the, uh, when you're uh, attached to a vineyard that is sourcing out all its own, or selling out all its own grapes, and you have that big plus or minus, uh, how do you deal with that on an annual basis if you, if you can't grow as many as you want? Well, it mostly, the, um, it's not too hard to deal with um, when you have too much or when it sets really heavy because you're thinning fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I did learn early on that uh, one of the best ways to um, uh, impress people or, or do a good job is to um, really nail down figuring out how much fruit you have out there. And when you do a crop adjustment, um, how to get it as accurate as possible because uh, wineries like to plan ahead and they like to know how much fruit to, it's gonna actually be coming in. And when you bring way more or way less than they're expecting, um, it doesn't, you, you do a much better job leaving a good impression when uh, they get what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was one area that I really um, uh, put a lot of effort into. And having a science background and with statistics and sampling, that's one of the biggest things mm-hmm. is you need to have a good sampling regime. And um, mm-hmm. so that was a challenge, but. Um, not, it, it didn't take too many years mm-hmm. to figure out. It's, I mean, you're still, there's still gonna be some degree of error, but that's natural, so. So you go from kind of small scale to this, where you're in charge of a lot of vineyards, uh, vineyard, estate vineyards here. So let's talk about the estate vineyards first, mm-hmm. and, and the, obviously biodynamic, organic. So tell me about the challenges of scale here and, and trying to be biodynamic on something this size. You know, it was a little, um, uh, intimidating at first, uh, especially given the um, the initiative or the idea to to um, convert to biodynamics uh, was presented to me in the uh, middle of the 2015 season with the desire for the 2016 crop. To be certified, so um, th- that was definitely intimidating. But I knew some people in the biodynamic community as well as the, in uh, uh, Demeter, mm-hmm. which is the certifying agency, and mm-hmm. so they were a really big help and um, kind of alleviating some of my concerns. And uh, one of the things I like about biodynamics is. Um, it's not quite as uh, black and white as organic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of practices that they uh, encourage you to do and that you um, can do to different degrees. And, and you, it, it's not 
you can do this, you can't do that. Um, so uh, we kind of did it uh, in steps. And so for instance, one of the, a lot of the things that we were doing here on the estate um, prior to even having the desire to be biodynamic were things that fit right into mm -hmm. what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, um, you know, one of the big things with biodynamics is to limit what you're bringing from offsite onto your site, so your offsite inputs. Mm -hmm. And so we were already um, growing our own cover crop seed here. Uh, we compost all of the winery waste. Uh, we were already bringing sheep onto the property to uh, help with early season vegetation control. <laughs> um, and so a lot, of the, a lot of those things were already in place, uh, producing our own uh, plant material, uh, vines. And uh, you know, one of the, the, the big thing that we had to do was start to incorporate the biodynamic preparations. And so um, to get us started, we started off purchasing them, which we still purchase them, uh, but we're in the process of um, uh, producing some on site here, mm -hmm. and uh, so you know that that gave us the ability to kind of uh, phase into it. And in some ways, I what I learned is is that a scale, while it can be intimidating, it actually can be a positive. And so mm -hmm. we have a lot of resources that um, might not be available to a smaller producer. And so uh, you know, we've got um, a vineyard mechanic, we've got a shop mechanic for the winery. Uh, so for instance, with the preparations you have to, there's a, um, a process for putting them into solution and it's uh, somewhat involved in terms of needing to stir one direction and then stop and stir the other direction and given the amount uh, you see some people doing this by hand, and given the amount of acres that we have to cover, um, we needed to come up with a mechanical way mm -hmm. to do it, which is, there's, there's you can buy um, preparation stirs. Um, they tend to be made in Europe and uh, fairly expensive, but we just scavenged around for stuff that we had here on site and basically built one ourselves. And so, you know, if I was just a five acre producer, um, I wouldn't have that ability to, to do that. And then um, it also takes a, f a fair amount of uh, um, labor, like not only in um, putting, putting the application of the preparations out, but preparing them and getting them ready to, to be put out and calibrating equipment. And so, you know, the King family, once they decide to do something, they're not gonna not back it up with the resources that you need to do it. And so, um, 
and again, when you're a, a larger company, you have those resources at your, um, you know, available to you. Mm -hmm. And so I've always kind of looked at it um, more as a positive than a negative. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if if I was um, tasked to do it and not given the resources mm -hmm. necessary, then yeah, it would have, scale would be, make <laughs> things really hard. But um, you know, we, we made, we, we converted one of our old sprayers into a biodynamic sprayer. We built, a, so basically it was a lot of equipment that we already had, mm -hmm. some of it not being used anymore because it didn't suit our purposes or was antiquated and we just would repurpose it and um, so uh, it, we have the, the resources necessary if you identify something that is a need mm -hmm. and can justify um, <clears throat> the expenditure then uh, if, if it is needed to get something a goal accomplished well it's going to be provided so sure. So you also mentioned your responsibility for vineyards offsite. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how that works and what, what it is you're, you're doing as you're going and traveling to these sites. So it's, uh, you know, it varies depending on the time of year. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things is contracting the fruit. So that's what you're doing during the off season. And, uh, and then primarily during the growing season, you know, we have an expectation for how we want grapes grown mm -hmm. and uh, it just involves interacting with the vineyard managers, owners, um, showing up at the right time. Um, one of the things I learned early on uh, was that, well a couple of things, one timing of our practices is really important both from a cost standpoint because um, if you do something at the correct time, it may still cost a fair amount, but if you do something at the wrong time, it's going to cost you a lot more. <laughs> and then a lot of these practices that we do are geared towards enhancing quality. Mm -hmm. And if they're done at the right time, they're going to enhance quality. And if they're not, well, they're not going to enhance quality. And so. If you're a buyer of grapes and um, you have a presence in the vineyard and are requesting things to be done, you're going to be at the top of the list. Uh, and you know, just despite their best efforts, things are not always done on time in the vineyard, and um, it's the winery that shows up. You know, two weeks before harvest is the first time they've come out since the winter. <laughs> uh, who knows when their leaves were pulled mm -hmm. or um, when their vines were hedged. And uh, so I, I, you want to go out so that um, they know the the vineyard owners know what you want to get done, but then you also want to go out. Once they, even once they know how you want something done, then you just go out so that it gets done when you want it done. <laughs> and it's amazing. 
how whenever you show up, like the work's either just been done or the work's being done that day. Um, and then the other thing I like to make sure that, um, because I came from the vendor management side, the last thing you want to do is, is to tell somebody how you want something done and then show up after the fact and say, no, this isn't what I wanted. And either it doesn't get redone, in which case you're not happy, mm -hmm. or the vineyard owner has to redo a job and they're not happy mm -hmm. because they just spent a bunch more money. And so uh, there's a few jobs in particular the biggest one being crop thinning, where I like to be out there um, when it starts, like not a day or two after, uh, but an hour or two after. So that if you do need to make some adjustments, uh, they get made before much work has been done. Um, and I think that the vineyard um, owners appreciate that. They'd rather have that as well. They want you happy, but they don't want it to be at uh, extra cost either. So um, I think it's really important that the winery have a presence throughout the whole growing season with the vineyard so that um, everybody's on the same page and uh, expectations are being met. Um, and I think that's what the vineyard uh, I know when I was a vineyard manager, in some ways I took it as a compliment that people were confident that things were being done, but at the same time, uh, I preferred when they w there was at least some sort of mm -hmm. uh, recurring presence mm -hmm. from the wineries. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. I know this is a silly question given all that you do, but describe a, typ a typical day for me at, at work. You know, a typical day during the growing season would uh, involve um, probably going to anywhere from four to six vineyards, um, sometimes meeting with, depending on how many vineyards, sometimes I'll meet with the vineyard managers if I uh, need to get too many vineyards done in a day, I'll sometimes um, not announce that I'm going to be around because uh, vineyard managers are a lot like truck drivers in that they don't have a whole bunch of interaction and so when they do sometimes conversations can go on and <laughs> on and uh, next thing you know you were hoping to go to four vineyards and you're only on your second. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but typical day is just going out and again at this point I have a really good group of growers that I've been working with for a long time. Um, every year there's a little bit of change. We'll have a, a few new growers and they that'll tend to be a little bit more work um, on my part in terms of making sure we're all on the same page and they know what we want to get done. Most of my growers, they know what my expectations now are mm -hmm. and so it's just a matter of having a presence um, so that your expectations are being met mm -hmm. in a timely fashion. Um, 
and just maintaining uh, good relationships with um, your growers is really important mm -hmm. and I think uh, that takes a fair amount of work mm -hmm. uh, particularly during harvest when there's competing interests sometimes sure. going on there um, <clears throat> and so for instance um, you know yesterday I was out in the Silverton area and we have a bunch of Pinot Gris that gets grown out there and um, pretty large vineyards uh, but most of the time um, I was just walking vineyard blocks and I I would rather um, walk a vineyard block than you know sometimes the they'll have you know, uh, Kubotas or these little <laughs> ATVs and um, you can see more ground that way but you don't it's not quite as intimate with the vines and uh, I think you overlook things and you're also more at the whim of you're going where the driver wants to take you <laughs> uh, as opposed to maybe where you want to go um, so you Usually, I like to do that part on my own, and then if I, if I have an issue or something that I feel like needs to be discussed at that point, I'll um, call the foreman or the vendor manager and see if we can get together and take a look at something. And so, um, but for the for the uh, for the most part, a typical day involves just walking a bunch of vineyards and which you know that's a lot of driving but at least I have a good um, destination that's outside <laughs> so that's very peaceful yeah at least during this time of year sure at harvest or you know when once we start well one the two busiest times are when we have to sample to do our crop estimates and then when we have to sample to uh, for harvest, mm -hmm. and that gets a little crazy <laughs> with the with the number of vineyards that we in the um, uh, geographic area that we have to cover. Sure, so. sure. huge amount of property, huge amount of area. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So tell me what it is you want your grapes to express when they're made into King of State wine. You know, in general, um, when uh, what I like to, s to see is that you are maximizing the potential of any given site. And so you really have to uh, first identify what you're looking for out of a, a given site mm -hmm. and um, what you feel the site can deliver and then figure out how you can maximize that. Mm -hmm. And so um, it'll vary from program to program, variety to variety, and uh, but in the end what, what I'm really looking for is, um, you know, that the, the grapes are expressing where they're grown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do 
And that can be down to the specific vineyard in the case of all the vineyard designates that we make, mm -hmm. as well as um, just an overall region. So, you know, we have a lot of wines that are specific vineyard, small production wines. And there you're really pushing for it to exhibit a specific site mm -hmm. and then we also have you know more of our flagship um, wholesale distributed blends and so there you're looking more at, at expressing what it means to be a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir or say a Southern Oregon Marsan Roussan where you're bringing in grapes from a couple of different vineyards and blending them together mm -hmm. to um, kind of optimize the expression of that particular area. Mm -hmm. So as you look in the future for King of State and for your role here, what do you see as you look, say, 10 years down the road? You know, it's uh, one of the things that I'm pretty ex kind of excited about, pretty excited about is, um, and Justin brought this up during lunch, is the um, Sauvignon Blanc mm -hmm. that, uh, so I've been growing Sauvignon Blanc pretty much the whole time that I've been in the industry because Croft was um, known as a Sauvignon Blanc site. Um, they had old, when I started, they still had some of the own rooted uh, vines there. Um, one of the big projects that I had at that site was replanting it because it was going down to phylloxera at the time. but. Croft was one of the few sites that um, planted Saab Blanc and actually uh, continued to grow it. Like there was a number of vineyards early on that tried Saab Blanc mm -hmm. and ended up ripping it out. And I think, especially because they are own rooted. Um, it's a little bit harder to grow Sauvignon Blanc in Oregon when it's own rooted, mm -hmm. especially back then when we were in not quite the warm pattern that we're in now. Um, so I've for a long time had a passion for it. Mm -hmm. And I brought it up maybe five years ago or six years ago and at a sales meeting and it, it didn't really get any traction or anything. Um, we had been making a Croft Vineyard Sauv Blanc, which everybody loved, but as far as uh, a larger production one, um, uh, we hadn't done that yet. And so we were kind of searching for things, what our next um, uh, thing to do or different ideas when we sold the Acrobat brand. Mm -hmm. And that was one that I threw out there was, what about a nationally distributed Sauvignon Blanc? It seemed to me like um, I knew that we could grow it well here. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty popular variety right now, mm -hmm. especially with the rise of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc as a, uh, a cool climate um, version mm -hmm. of it. And um, 
but at the same time, nobody was really doing a cool climate Sauvignon Blanc, not on any scale in uh, Oregon yet. So uh, we're pretty excited about it. We're hoping that it goes over as well as we think it will and kind of looking at um, maybe doing to Sauvignon Blanc something similar to what we did to, to Pinot Gris, mm -hmm. which uh, there's a lot of Pinot Gris planted out there, but there wasn't, not so much in Oregon, there was some, but there wasn't a nationally recognized brand that specialized in Pinot Gris, and that was something that we wanted to do at, and did it well, so uh, we'd like to potentially emulate that um, with Sauvignon Blanc. Sure. You mentioned earlier that when you, when you started that organic wasn't necessarily a buzzword that you would use. Um, is that the biggest change you've seen in, in the viticultural part of the, of, the, of, the, of the industry, or is there something else that's, that's a bigger change? Well, I'd say kind of our that's a pretty big change, but the other one that I would probably put out there is um, uh, crop loads, mm -hmm. like looking at crop loads. And um, when I first started in the industry, it was, oh, everything has to be two tons per acre. And it didn't matter where your site was, what your spacing was, what your soil was. Um, and so none of that ever made sense to me. Um, and through the work that they've done, Patty Skinkis has done at OSU, um, I think we've come to realize that it is maybe uh, a little bit not quite as clear cut. Um, there may be some sites out there that two tons per acre, yeah, that's what makes sense for that site. Mm -hmm. But then there's other sites out there that probably um, a higher crop load actually will give you a higher quality than a lower crop, crop load would, um, especially if you want to keep your vines in balance. So I'd say that's a pretty big change. Is mm -hmm. uh, wineries being more open to higher crop loads on the vines. Mm -hmm. And from an economic standpoint, um, that also really helps just in that, unfortunately, <clears throat> wine prices, the, the amount that you can charge for wine does not go up at the same rate that costs of inputs go up. And so, um, that was definitely a big, uh, I don't know if game changer is the right word, but um, very helpful to know that we can grow somewhat higher crop loads without um, uh, affecting quality or lowering quality. Mm -hmm. What about for the industry in, in general as you, as you look forward uh, 10, 15 years? What, what do you see Oregon wine looking like? What, what changes do you see on the horizon for it? I'd say probably the varietal makeup mm -hmm. is going to uh, diversify and expand uh, for a number of reasons. You know, one obviously being climate change. Um, 
I think in some ways we're lucky that we started off as a cool growing region because uh, we have plenty of varietals to um, incorporate into the mix as the climate does get warmer. Um, so I'd say that is uh, one big thing and you already see it happening. Um, there's a lot of interest in uh, I wouldn't say obscure varietals but varietals that Oregon at least especially the Willamette Valley aren't known for yet. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is it'll, it's, it'll just be interesting to see how the trend of larger out-of-state um, uh, wineries, companies move into Oregon and um, it's, it, it already has been pretty interesting and uh, in some sometimes I would say it's been a positive and sometimes maybe not so positive. Uh, I think there's been different approaches that have been taken by people that have moved in from um, out of state and California in particular. Uh, but in general, I think it's probably a positive um, uh, so long as it's handled well. And so, um, you know, if you, uh, in some ways, it, it, it's inevitable that it's going to happen. You work really hard to make a name for something, and naturally, people are going to want to get in on the action, right? Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, what what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? My advice would be to. Um, uh, try to get exposed to as much I mean you may have a particular area that you're you're interested in within viticulture or winemaking uh, or marketing or and my advice would be to try to broaden your experience as much as possible and to because um, really the if you're well-rounded and understand all the different aspects of it, your chance of success is much greater than if you, I mean, it seems like these days people really want to focus and focus and focus and try to be like the very best at one thing. And that's great and everything, but um, there's, the, the wine industry is so intertwined and so reliant on all aspects working well that if you don't understand how uh, another part of the industry works, um, you're going to be uh, definitely at a disadvantage, I think. True. So. Okay, so that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything else I should have asked? Anything else we didn't talk about that we should have? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> that I can think of. Um, well. Thank you so much for your yeah. time and for your answers. I really appreciate it. It's uh, not back in here, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that guy too. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. 
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.